Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Imagine for a moment that this thing is not anything that can be identified because it prefers not to be. Wherever there is life, it brings death. Because it is evil. Absolute evil. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, The Fifth Element. Beware spoilers. Coming to you from the deck of Floston Paradise, my name is Don, and to my right we have our comic book guy, John. Negative, I am a meat popsicle. And to my left we have the professor, Ken. Good evening, everybody. How are you guys doing tonight? Oh, I am feeling green. Super green? Super green. I'm green as well. All right, all right. Um, Tonight we are going to talk about the fifth element. It was the comic book guy's turn to rattle us off a movie, and he came up with the fifth element. So the question is, as always, why the fifth element? You know, it's one of those movies that whenever it comes on TV, uh, I just feel like watching it. It's always a good ride. Um, I heard a description of it today that I thought was pretty well. If you took a cartoon or Japanese anime and all of a sudden just converted it to live action, you get the fifth element with its over-exaggerated scenes, its comedy, its sci-fi action, its you know hard-to-accept-sometimes character portrayals. Just a fun ride, I think, all the way through. I think that's a compelling point to, that you make, as well as you throw in, you know, the uh, the boldness of color throughout the you, the movie. It just it is su- such a vibrant movie. I too agree with you, comic book guy. That it kind of gives to me not so much an anime feeling, but definitely a cartoon feel because uh, Bruce Willis's character and the whole cab scene uh, is very reminiscent to the animated movie Heavy Metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so, I can see that. Uh, when I first saw The Fifth Element, that's exactly where my head went when we got introduced to that stuff. Well, when you look at where this movie came from, it came from the mind of basically a teenager in high school who envisioned this all throughout his high school for like 20 years before the movie actually got written and produced and made. So you can see that it comes from the mind of a teenager. And it's just as long as you accept it as that, um, it's just a fun movie. Luke Besson said that he was a pretty lonely kid in high school and he escaped through his uh, concoction of stories that he would come up with in in his solitude and his imagination uh, stitched all these little stories together that eventually came to be the fifth element. Released on May 7th, 1997. The Fifth Element was directed by Luke Besson, written by Luke Besson and Robert Mark Kamen, and it stars Mila Jovovich, Bruce Willis, Gary Oldman, Ian Holm, 
Chris Tucker, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $90 million and looks like it brought in $264 million. Not too shabby for a French film. I mean, I don't think they had done a lot of really big-scale action movies around that time. It was really popular when it came out in France, but in America, it it, it fizzled. It We only gave it uh, $63.5 million did in you our go- box office. Did you guys see it when it came out? Do you I, remember? I was not in the, I don't think I was in the theater. I believe I did see it in the theater. And one of the reasons why I think it fizzled out in the U.S. is because we had in our minds two types of sci-fi films. We had our Star Wars, which was just over the top adventure, you know, adventure uh, sci-fi, you know, things that, you know, were just amazing uh, to behold, great storylines, all that. And then we also had the Star Trek universe, which was all logical and scientific and built in things that could actually happen, you know, in the future. So now here comes something that's really far-fetched and kind of some comedic elements. I don't think the U.S. population was into it. Well, also, I think another problem that it suffered from is it's a convoluted storyline. It, it's mm-hmm. tough to follow the first time through, you know, what the heck is going on throughout this movie. Oh, see, I thought it was very simple from A to B. Uh, I remember seeing it in the theater. And, and in 97, Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis, he, right? He so, is a movie star. And at that point, I'm like, I'll see Bruce Willis act out of a fucking box, right? So, of course, I was there. Take my fucking money. And I saw a lot of Star Wars elements in it. Uh, I saw other tropes from science fiction movies in it and the the heavy metal comparison and and it was all rolled up in this nice little bow and I had fun with it. Uh, so I remember seeing it in the theater and I, I like the fifth element. I always have. What'd you think of the casting? I thought the casting was good. I, I hate to say that I'm not a big Mila Jolovich fan, but you know, when I first saw it, I wasn't sure she was right for the role. And then going back last night and watching it and watching movies like we do now, uh, I was watching it and she, for, for some reason, she got a lot better. So um, Gary Oldman was fantastic as the bad guy, you know, Bruce being Bruce. Uh, I thought the casting was great. What about you? You know, I actually really liked Mila Jovich in this. And of all the movies that she's been in, you know, Resident Evil and some other ones that come to mind, uh, I thought this was most her most fun role, the role that she really got into and got into the character. I mean, she learned a whole new language that's actually, they've got a dictionary out that it's an actual language that she had to speak in this movie. She took it that seriously. Uh, and she wasn't just, again, you know, I've always said it before, uh, I'm into badass female characters. And she wasn't, you know, that vulnerable in this movie. She was willing to take charge and kick ass when it came time. So I really like that character. Uh, for Gary Oldman, you can put him in anything, and he's always amazing. I guess uh, he did this movie as a favor to the director who had helped him finance a previous movie. So he did this movie without ever reading the script and then hates the movie. He won't talk about it very much. Yeah, well, I can kind of see that. I mean, that's probably a little out there for Gary Oldman. You know what I mean? I don't know. What about you? Do you like this cast? Oh, yeah, I totally loved it. You know, Bruce Willis, he's on his game here. And, you know, it's what's not to like about Bruce in this role because he's John McClane. And, you know, he just 
kicks ass and takes names, you know, just, you know, so brazenly. And Mila Jovovich, boy, I I am so captivated watching her every time on the screen. Her 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 colors just pop off the screen and I and I just love her flamboyance, you know, as she moves through the movie and Gary Oldman's Zorg loved him. He is such a a wonderful bad guy, you know, with his his southern charm if you will, but he's a total total evil man. It's just like, wow, it's just a wonderful dynamic. Uh, what did you guys think about uh, when Chris Tucker popped up? From what I you know, hear from different people, you either really love him or you really hate him in this movie. Was he the Jar Jar Binks of The Fifth Element? I don't, yeah, maybe. I mean, for me, I remember when I first saw this movie, I loved it. I thought he was one of the funniest characters in it. But I think after like the 40th or 50th time you've seen this movie, he really starts to grate on you. What about you? What do you think of Tucker? Fucking loved him. Yeah. Man, every time he's on the screen, can't get enough of him. To this day, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. He makes the movie fun and alive. He has alive. so much energy. So much energy. Yeah. And the way that Willis just bounces off of him. Yeah. You know what I mean? and, and his frenetic nature, man. You know, as he's just so, so fast. No, 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 no. Yeah. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, he, he's just so frenetically fast. It's just so fun. Yeah, I love him. I love him to death. So uh, the professor and I are going to fall into the category of loving Chris Tucker in this role. Uh, what do you think of the blonde Bruce Willis? I don't give a fuck what his hair is, color is. He's still John McClane, as the professor was saying. This is Die Hard in Space. Yes, do you, more or less. Did, have you heard what his character design was modeled after? What he was meant to look like? Not the guy from Heavy Metal? No. Uh, who was it then? He was modeled to look like a Ken doll. And you can kind of see it with the blonde hair. Well, now that you say that, yeah, you kind of can. You, yeah. yeah, you can see it. Yeah, He's definitely not a Ken doll. Well, no. he was. he's Ken if Ken is John McClane. <laughs> you know what I mean? So so speaking of looks, this movie, all of these costumes, there must have been, I don't know, hundreds, hundreds of costumes. I don't know, maybe a thousand. All of the costumes were singularly made for, by uh, Jean-Paul Goudier, and he was personally responsible for every single costume design. What a Herculean task. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, do the costumes hold up? Yeah. Still. I think they do. And I was thinking about this earlier was we just got back from Comic-Con a couple of weeks ago. And you you can't go to a Comic-Con without seeing a Lilu. Yeah, that's fair. And yeah. so I feel like even today, people are still loving on this movie. I'm surprised. I don't know what other movies were out at the time You know that this movie came out You know for Academy Awards. I'm surprised this one wasn't nominated for the costumes. So, Don, in 1997, what movies were nominated for Best Costume? Um, there was The Wings of the Dove, Oscar and Lucinda, Cundin, Amistad, and a little movie by James Cameron called Titanic. Fucker! Was it Titanic the one? Uh, t- t- <laughs> Titanic won everything. Everything. I only recognize, I think, two movies off that list. Yeah, um, I, re- I recognize most of them, and um, I can't say that I saw, but, you know. In the sound category that The Fifth Element was nominated for, it was The Fifth Element, Face Off, and, you guessed it, Titanic. Titanic. So, and Titanic won. F- yes, dude, Titanic well, won I, everything. I was actually leaning towards Face Off because I love that movie. Oh, my. You would. 
So to jump back to casting for a sec, this movie could have been very different with two characters that came close to being cast in the movie. They originally wanted Mel Gibson for Corbin Dallas, and they wanted... Um, I just lost it. And they wanted Julia Roberts for Lilu. Can you imagine that casting? No, not, I, not at all. It, that actually goes on to become conspiracy theory. I think Mel Gibson maybe had been able to pull off Corbin Dallas, but I think Bruce just did such an amazing job. I do not think Julia Roberts could have done justice to Lilu. Here's the problem with going back and saying, could these guys do it or not? We only know Corbin Dallas as Bruce Willis. Right, so now the performance is compared to Bruce Willis. Could Mel Gibson play Corbin Dallas? Absolutely, he can because he's Martin fucking Riggs, right? But we'll never know how that would feel because we are so used to Bruce Willis. So I don't know. I I will say that I could. I can't see that movie happening or it being as successful as Bruce Willis because Bruce Willis brings more of this charm and swagger than Mel Gibson had at the time. That's just my own opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, Luke Basson, he wanted he wanted Bruce Willis, period. The the Mila Jojovich, that was That's uh, his wife at the time. Well, actually not quite. He was married at the time. The actress who plays Pava Laguna, the actress was originally cast for it, could not make it due to uh her uh, commitments elsewhere. And so Luke Besson's wife ends up playing that role. And get the fuck out of here, really? That's his wife. I did not know that. Yeah. And, and so, yes, eventually Mila and Luke do get married. But now think about this as well. Do you know how old she is when she does this movie? 20 something? I say in her 20s, I think. 19. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well. She was a model before that. And I'm sure Luke was like 40, 50, probably. I mean, it's he's, Hollywood. He's probably in his 40s, probably. Well, and he is French, so he's got that going When for she him. first started out, when she first auditioned for the role, she did not get a call back. She was what they were not looking for. She was wearing uh, pretty much the opposite of stuff that they were looking for. Clunky clothes, awkward, uh, awkward makeup, uh uh, thrift store clothing, and so she was dropped off. And it wasn't until months later that Mila happens into Luke at a swimming pool. It, I think it was in France, and he's like, "I know you were the you were the girl with the green eyeshadow." And so they got to talking, and eventually, she made it onto a short list. Well, there you go. I uh, I remember her best from Dazed and Confused. Oh. I remember her best from The Fifth Element. Fifth Element for me and Resident Evil. I, I knew th- that you were going to say that. I know. Do you know what time it is? It's time for some trivia. So I've put together some questions for Don and Ken to see who knows the movie better. So we'll start with the first one here. This evil comes every how many years? 5,000. 5,000. The point goes to Ken because he said it first. Where does Corbin's mother live? Phoenix. New York. The moon. She's calling from the lunar surface. What language does Corbin claim to speak? Or what languages does Corbin claim to speak? English and bad English. God damn it. Goes to Ken. What is Corbin's rank in the military? Colonel. General. Major. 
major. How many miles from Earth does the dark planet stop? 62. Can you have a guess? 1,500 miles. Don gets it with 62 exactly. Bam! One to one. How many or two to one. How many times does Corbin's mother call him throughout the movie? Three Twice. times. How many times did you say? Twice. It's three times. Tied, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> nice work. I think he's getting them wrong on purpose so he doesn't just show me up. So... In our collection of movie trivia so far, I believe that puts you two as tied. Still? Yeah, I think you're still tied. So we do not have a movie expert yet. What is the name of the weapon that Zorn sells to the Mangalores? The something 5000? Yeah, something like that. The ZF-1. Oh. Here's another little fun fact. Did you realize that all of the planets in our solar system would fit between the Earth and the moon? No, I did not know that. Isn't that crazy to think about? Yeah. Did you know that the human head weighs eight pounds? No, I did not. Because every time I put my head on the scale, I lift it off and it always says zero. Oh, that's crazy. Did you know I had sushi for lunch today? Gross. And those were trivial comments by the three guys. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> In 1914, aliens known as Mondoshans meet their human contact, a priest of a secret order at an ancient Egyptian temple. They take the only weapon capable of defeating a great evil that appears every 5,000 years, promising to protect it and return it before the great evil's re-emergence. The weapon consists of the four classical elements as four engraved stones, plus a sarcophagus containing... A fifth element. In 2259, the great evil appears in deep space as a giant living fireball. It destroys an armed Earth spaceship as it heads to Earth. The Mondoshone's current human contact on Earth, priest Vito Cornelius, informs the president of the Federated Territories of the Great Evil's history and of the weapon that can stop it. So this movie kicks off and we get a lot of credits and uh, the visuals. What was all that flying stuff at the beginning? I'm assuming it was like an asteroid field and we're just going through the remnants of particles in space. Yeah, maybe. They never they never show what that goes to. It was weird. Luke Basson, he his names appear in the credits as, for, as the director at the beginning of the mo- in the movie twice. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. I did. It's like, why is it showing it again? Well, some people just want to see their name on the big screen. I guess. Well, he's French. What did you guys think of the visual effects? Oh, I thought the the space effects looked very uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah, so did I. So did I. And, you know, at the time in 97, uh, CG is is doing it. You know, Mm -hmm. we're two years away from the first prequel. And um, I thought that for 97, it looked good, but watching it last night, it it feels dated to me. Agreed. And, and I think that um, movies can feel dated, and but if the story is still good and you still find it entertaining, you can look past it. And I think this is one of those movies where I completely look past it. From what I've read, this was one of the last movies to really use a lot of practical effects in it before... We get all the CGI spaceships and things like that in the scenes. This, and I think they said, someone told me, uh, Starship Troopers really focus a lot on practical effects. 
Yeah, that's a compelling point because, you know, a couple, a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Waterworld and we were talking about the practical effects of Waterworld, that was two years before. Yeah. But yeah, um, I, I see what you're saying about the practical effects because as you mentioned, Mr. Don, you have a couple of years later, Star Wars coming out and that just changed the landscape on how people chose to show their special effects. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are on earth and it's 1914 and we have Sam and we have this guy, uh, deciphering a wall. Yeah. He's some scientist. Maybe he's an archeologist. I don't know. Luke Perry's there. Dylan McKay. Dreamy. Absolutely. He is. Yeah. So this was, must've been, you know, very early, uh, no two one oh, I guess. And he's just there. No, it said Egypt. And he, yep. the only reason why he's there is to keep track of the kid who keeps falling asleep on the job. Aziz, light! And while the archaeologist or the professor guy is uncovering stuff, we meet this priest. And he is the protector of the, this, secret. the secret. Right. And we've seen this trope a million times as well. You know, But it makes sense that the aliens would have a contact on Earth and it would have to keep going throughout generation, generation. So uh, the protector of the secret comes in and he poisons the water because uh, the white men know too much. But either it was coincidence well, he or made, he, know, he knew that the aliens were on their way. Well, he made the mistake of saying, let's make a toast to the stuff that you have figured out. Well, how many people are going to toast with water? The guy would have drank it if he had not said the word toast. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But... That didn't bug me. What bugged me was, did the aliens know to show up right then because the guy was getting too close to exposing their secret, or was it just a coincidence? Was it they were just coming back to pick up the stones? Well, that's where I, you know, this movie leaves a lot of those kind of plot holes where we don't know the answers to it. But one of the things that, you know, I was watching a commentary on this was, that date uh, period that they show us right in the beginning is right before World War II, World War One happens, and so the aliens are coming there because they feel that the elements, the weapon, will not be safe on Earth when we're you know when we start into our world wars. That's a compelling point, considering what we get out of Lilu at the very end of the movie when she finally gets down to the W's. So we'll go ahead and call it convenience, mm. uh, or we'll go ahead and call it good timing on everybody's part. So the aliens come out. Uh, what do you guys think of this design? They are metal? Ah, oh, metal man. Well, the original thought that I had, first of all, when I first saw them, I think the first time I saw this movie, I thought, oh, they're just some kind of steampunk type aliens. You know, after watching again multiple times and seeing that, you know, Lilu, they rebuilt her with what was inside of it, I almost think they're like Iron Man. They're just suits protecting what's inside. That's what I think, too. But they kind of look like penguins, yeah. and they kind of move like penguins. Because they waddle. For being so highly evolved, they waddle, they move slow, they can't get out of the way, and a big cement door just crushes a guy? Yeah, well, I mean, a big cement door will crush anybody. I don't know where the problem in that is. Uh, they're slow, mm-hmm. right? So, And what happens is they come down, and the professor can't, uh, believe what's going on and Luke Perry can't believe it. They're, you know, amazed with these aliens, but the priest is used to it because he's their contact. And the aliens have come down to pick up the five elements. Right. 
right? Mm-hmm. The the ultimate weapon to kill the ultimate evil. Which they promise to return when evil returns. Right. In 300 years. Yeah. Um, so in the meantime, uh, Luke Perry gets all scared and uh, accidentally shoots one of them. Well, he- thus uh, uh, activating the uh, closure of the place where the stones are kept the thing that confused me about this part and i still again seems like an open plot hole is did they kill the professor or did he just pass out because he says you killed the professor or they killed the professor he just falls down right so we don't know if he's dead or not does it matter? It just seems like an overreaction from Luke Perry. It's completely an overreaction, and that's what he—that's what he would think in that moment. That's how I took Guess it. He was freaking out, at, right? And but these guys are peaceful, and they've already established that they're peaceful, so there is no reason to kill him. Well, the other question I had was the guy who's trying to get to the door gives the priest a key. Why didn't the priest just use the key to open back up the door and see if the guy was still alive? Uh, probably doesn't work that way. Okay. Plus, he yeah. got smashed. You had to wait 300 years before that key will work again? Yeah, probably. Which, even when that door opens up in 300 years, his body's not there anymore? Well, we, we don't know because because we had David go on ahead to prepare the chamber. Oh, well, that's a good point. So the aliens take off, and the priest keeps the key and will be the watcher good. for... Pass down the info. Yep. And so now we fast forward to 300 years later, and uh, we are at the, I guess, the NASA of the world at the time, and there is a strange blip or... An uh, unknown mass. An unknown mass, thank you, that the Federation sees. And so they send a discount Star Destroyer out there to... Take readings. And, you know, I kind of like this bit where we now we are introduced to the president and kind of how the way the world works at this point. And right after we meet him, we see we are introduced to Cornelius and he stands up and we see his belt buckle, which is uh, a buckle that shows the four symbols for the four elements. Right. He is. He's trying to be the voice of reason and say to the uh, president, I know what this is. Don't shoot at it. It's only going to make it bigger. That's right. What I love about this scene is it it brings in the trope, the movie trope of the U.S. government. If there's something ugly out there, if there's something we don't understand, shoot first. Ask oh, questions later. Absolutely. You know, that was, that was a big trope in everything at the mm-hmm. time, and it still kind of is. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I like uh, as uh, the president and the uh, commander dude on the ship are going back and forth, back and forth, Cornelius kind of gets into the president's head and says, well, maybe we shouldn't do this. And he says, he tells the guy, he says, I have a doubt. And the guy responds back, I don't. And then they immediately fire. And it turns out Vito was right. Well, I like that, you know, Vito kind of, makes a statement that is a theme throughout this movie, which is evil begets evil. So the whole idea of love is what's needed to defeat evil. Well, yeah. I mean, that that's the motif of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, And then right after this, we are introduced to Corbin. We are cut to South Brooklyn, New York, and it has this wonderfully swinging beat as Corbin starts his day and we get to see his world. What would you guys think of the soundtrack? Throughout this flick. Fucking loved it. It's kind of catchy. It really is. Well, I like how it goes from, you know, you know, operatic type tones to techno beats to kind of, you know, almost classical type music. It just jumps around so much. Right. 
And we meet Bruce Willis's character, Corbin, and we find out that he's a cab driver. But it kind of gives us, you know, a look of how, what the future looks like. Not, the, not quite dystopian. Right. Where they live. And, you know, I like the bed that it goes in or the, the old bed goes away and a new bed covered in plastic comes up and then it slides away and everything's really compact. And he has a fucking cat and the cigarettes. The cigarettes had me laughing because the, the filter the, was the filter was the size of the cigarette and the cigarette was the size of what the filter should well, be. I so like I thought it was funny. The machine too is trying to help him stop smoking, so he only gets a certain amount of cigarettes. I I laughed when I was watching. And I said, "Fuck, that's what I need." Did yeah. you notice the little commercial from Ruby Rod? Oh yeah, on the oh yeah on throughout the, the TV. Yeah. And so during uh, Corbin's morning routine, he gets ready and then he gets to uh, his cab. Uh, but I got to say, one of my favorite bits in this movie, and it it's kind of borderline my favorite scene, is when he gets held up by the thug who's clearly on speed or something. I don't know if it was meth or what. Oh, mate, it was so funny. And so uh, Bruce Willis is so charming in this bit, and he's so just... He gives the Bruce Willis smile and just it, it's a it's almost a perfect Bruce Willis scene for me. I love this scene. And then when uh, he finally disarms the guy and the guy starts dancing. Yeah, he's dancing to the beat that seals it for me. And I got to laugh and, every and single he's, time. He's smirking. Yeah. And he's giggling because he's all hopped up on something. A, a lot every of, time. A lot of fans of this movie have claimed he is one of their favorite people in the entire thing. Just the, the acting and what the guy does, the meth guy does, is so humorous and so funny. And his responses to Bruce Willis, the timing that they have, is just is great. Oh, they play off each other very well. Very well. One of my I, favorite I like scenes. your hat. And then we go to... Um, then we're back to the to the president. And Cornelia says the mass is now adapting to what we are able to do and we have about 48 hours before life on earth will end. And at the same time the Mondo Shans are arriving and they're asking permission to land right. and this is when no, the to president cross our border. Well, what's the fucking difference? They're asking for permission and the president's like, "Okay, I'm going to believe you. Send them in." On the way to Earth, the Mondoshan spacecraft carrying the weapon is ambushed and destroyed by a crew of Mangalores, alien mercenaries hired by Earth industrialist Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg, who is working for the great evil. A severed hand in metal armor from the wreckage of the spacecraft is brought to New York City. From this, the government uses biotechnology to recreate the original occupant of the sarcophagus, a humanoid woman named Lilu, who remembers her previous life. Alarmed by the unfamiliar surroundings and high security, she escapes and jumps off a ledge, crashing into the flying taxi cab of Corbin Dallas, a former major in Earth's Special Forces. So we have the Mondoshan spacecraft, you know, coming through that, that border that they're allowed to pass through, and then immediately getting attacked and destroyed. For such an advanced race carrying supposedly the ultimate weapon and everything, you think they would have been a little better protected? Yeah, you would have thought. You would have thought that they had uh, like an early tracking system or they would have known that they were being tracked. Or a weapon on their ship. Uh, well, they got hit from behind. Yeah. You know, I, I, not to say that the weapon couldn't fire backwards. Who knows? It was a surprise attack. And, you know, it's like getting boarded by pirates or, or destroyed by pirates or something. Um, yeah, who knows? Either way, they didn't make it. 
right? Uh, but here's the thing that I appreciated kind of about this film and completely unnecessary. It doesn't matter, but it, it's kind of fun. The whole border crossing, why would you have that in space? And then later on when they land, they have like a landing strip when they come out of hyperspeed or something. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just uh, fun visual cues to let us know what's mm-hmm. going on. And the Mondoshan spacecraft blows up, and uh, we are to, and we are led to believe that there are no survivors, and Cornelius kind of just has a heart attack, right? Because now we're fucked, right? No fifth element. Can't activate the weapon, you know. And, His whole life has been useless. Right, and, and we were, st- and I believe we were under the impression that the stones were coming with him. Right, because that's what Zorg wanted. Right, the stones. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the entire weapon, I guess, Cornelius felt like it was lost. Yeah, because really, to the great evil, the fifth element is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything because they set up in the beginning when the professor was reading the hieroglyphics and trying to figure it all out that you just needed the four stones and then something in the middle. If you put evil in the middle, it was going to kill all life. If you put the fifth element in the middle it was going to save all life. Well, I thought that the evil could just hit the earth and destroy it. Well, that too. But they said, I got the impression that the evil needed to stand in that middle center area. Um, I didn't. But what do I know? I didn't get that impression either. I thought that it was always meant. But they do show something where, um, it. I guess there's a picture or something in the scroll or whatever, and it shows the evil well, on it's there. A, so, it's on the wall. Yeah, yeah. So who knows? Who knows what the logic is, right? However, a nuclear lab has DNA that they have recovered from the crash site. I thought this was a fun scene. They 3D printer. Yeah, pretty much, right? Could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. So they uh, keep talking about, you know, the genes and the DNA and how uh, the scientists are absolutely amazed by this specimen. And uh, one of the head science guys keeps calling... Uh, keeps calling her perfect and but they think it's a he and Mm -hmm. and then they finally regenerate her with the um with the 3d printer and i thought that the way they explained it you know for all intents purposes it it made sense Mm -hmm. you know because the ultraviolet thing at the very end because you had to burn the skin so it heals so it makes new skin and i thought that was kind of interesting one of the things that they brought up in, if you watch those YouTube videos, like everything wrong in certain movies, is if they can 3D print a person from the point of just having a little bit of DNA, uh, does it make life and death meaningless? They could have brought anybody back who died in this movie. Interesting question. I would say that if you die and they bring you back, because, uh, the, well, the fifth element wasn't dead. Right. Well, also, it was still alive because it had it had so much life in it. That's why they were so amazed by it. I think that if you took DNA from a dead body and regenerated it, I think it comes back more like a Frankenstein monster mm-hmm. than an actual person. Because when you die, you got to lose something, right? Maybe your soul. Who knows? Also, didn't the scientists uh, comment that that we have sixty four genomes? Yeah, and this one has over 200,000. 200, yeah, and so with that, there's a lot more. There's a lot more there. To, right, to and that's, I think that's what generated the life because it, it was a perfect. But General Monroe, 
Sounds like a freaking nature to me. In that moment, that's that's when both of them have those their green eyes. It's for the black light the effect. Black light. Just yeah. for a split second. I love the way that they both looked with their green eyes. What's all over the scientist's face? That's, that's I was wondering <laughs> too. What's he been doing on his break? And, and exactly in the his smile with it is he very pervy. Very yeah. pervy. Well, like when the guy asks, Can I take pictures? Oh, that's that's equally as pervy. But at least he waited till after the thermal bandages were on to say, Can I take a picture? Fair point. And so Lilu is created, and the general guy goes up to her and, and immediately tries to establish dominance. And uh, Lilo is speaking the language of the people, well, Mondo Sean. Well, speaking of that, Luke Basson actually put out a guide that him and some linguistic people actually created an, what they call the divine language. Uh, and so they actually... Uh, Mila actually learned the language and could speak it fluently. So I've always come, wanted to know what she was saying that first moment she woke up, as well as what she said in the taxi cab. So I actually went through and translated it. Uh, when she first wakes up and starts talking to the general, it appears that she is immediately back in the mode of being on the spaceship because she says, enemy vehicle, extremely dangerous. The vehicle... Uh, is very uh, has taken an aggressive action, and then she says to the general, "Speak, speak. I have questions." And then she says, uh, "Are you able to answer?" So that is what she is saying in her language to him that he is not understanding. I guess he doesn't speak the language. I guess not. No, and they said that they can't detect what the language is. But I thought it was interesting that the, her first thoughts were. Of the, the vehicle being attacked, she's right back where the attack happened. So it's almost like she's woken up the second after that ship exploded. I guess there's about 400 words in, in the language. And so naturally, Lilu escapes. Mm -hmm. uh, I like the wall that she jumps out of. The tinfoil wall? Yeah, it looks like a tinfoil wall. It's kind of weird. Um, but then she starts climbing through the, you know. The ventilation system. And she makes it outside, and she jumps because she doesn't want to get arrested. I li I do like how she just kind of casually walks along the perimeter of the building. Like, it doesn't matter that she's that high up there. When she's walking out there, there is this really sweet beat of music that is playing during this time. Absolutely, yeah. This movie is very well scored. I, I like them. Yeah. I, I even like the opera bit. When she goes to jump off the ledge, uh, did you get a Blade Runner vibe? Kind of. I think the way that they did the 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 world makes sense. Of, you know, we have to build up because we fucked the planet up, whatever. But um, like yeah, kind of. I guess the vehicles were inspired by Blade Runner, especially the taxi cab design was inspired by the vehicles in Blade Runner. Yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me. I love the look on her face when she first is exposed to New York City, and we see New York City in all of its splendor with all of the 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 the, uh, the the cityscape going down into the horizon line and all of the cars, so many different vibrant colors happening. It is so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Even though watching it last night, it, you know, it, it looked like a video game or it looked very dated, like I it said. It looked dated. But that was okay because you have the music that keeps you going and, you know, the interaction that's about to happen uh, is always fun. You know what I mean? So Lilu jumps and she lands in Corbin's cab. Mr. Linguistic, what does she say when she lands? Well, the first thing that I wanted to point out was 
that when she goes through Corbin's cab, he loses four points of the five points he has left. So I thought that was interesting. That was worth four points, yeah. even though it wasn't really his fault that that accident happened. Now, when she wakes up and says to him, she first thing she says is alert, careful, authority. So she's trying to alert him that she's being chased. The second thing she says to him is, uh, if you help me, uh, you'll get the affection of the almighty abounding assurance. And then she says also to him, be careful. Yeah, and he doesn't understand that. No. So he just keeps saying bada boom. Yeah, all they get is big bada boom. Yeah, yeah. And so the cops come up. I, I love the way the cops' uniforms look. So do I. They kind of remind me of RoboCop a little bit. A little. Yeah. And uh, I, I like the the practicality of how they were going to arrest Lilu, right? Oh, with we're, the cable? Yeah, the c- we're floating cars, and so they were going to transfer back and forth. And I do like this bit because, you know, Lilu's scared, and, and Mila does a great job portraying this. And uh, she sees the sign of the hungry kids. She kind of does some emotional blackmail. And uh, she asks Bruce Willis to help her. She gives him the eyes. and I can't. He wants to, but he can't. He's only got one point on his license left. You understand. And then this brings me to the second point I was making earlier. He lost four points for her crashing through the hood. But running from the cops was only worth one point. I thought that was kind of backwards. Well, he also said that eh, we got lucky because if they don't chase you after a block, then you're good. But they didn't get lucky. They chased him after a block. Yes, they did. Yeah. So um, the cops chase him. They finally lose him. And Lilu is able to tell Corbin that he she needs to go to Vito Cornelius. Yeah, well, first thing she says as she's passing out is priest. Priest. And he says, I don't think you're that hurt that we need a priest already. She's like, Vito Cornelius. Wow, that was spot on. Don't encourage him. Dallas delivers Lilu to Cornelius and his apprentice, David, who recognizes her as the fifth element. As Lilu recuperates, she tells Cornelius that the stones were not on board the Mondoshan ship. Simultaneously, the Mondoshans inform Earth's government that the stones were entrusted to an alien opera singer, the diva Plava Laguna. Zorg reneges on his deal with the Mangalores for failure to obtain the stones and kills some of them. Earth's military sends Dallas to meet Plava Laguna. A rigged radio contest provides a cover, rewarding Dallas a luxury vacation aboard a flying hotel on planet Faustin. Accompanied by flamboyant talk show host Ruby Rod, it includes a concert by Plava Laguna, and learning that Lilo shares his mission, Dallas lets her accompany him. Cornelius instructs David to prepare the temple, then stows away on the luxury spaceship. The Mangalore crew, pursuing the stones for themselves, also illegally board the ship. So Cornelius is freaking out, and he is elated over the moon that the fifth element has shown up on his doorstep. Well, before that, when he, when Corbin first shows up at the door and uh, says, I forget what exactly he says, and or we need a priest or something like that. Are and, you a priest? And he goes, uh, weddings are down the hall. Yeah. I like that, uh, that little opening there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you're right. He's fucking besides himself. 
right? And Corbin doesn't really know what's going on. He's, he's just kind of delivering her. Uh, so Vito goes to get changed or whatever. He wants to wear the appropriate robe wear. And Lilu is kind of passed out, and, you know, Corbin wants to wake her because... He was, Cor- told, he was told to wake her gently. In and, a creeper type of mood, mode. Yeah, sure, I guess. Um, is it is it a more of a sleeping beauty, or would you say that, that was kind of creeper? Um, well, I guess in 2023, can we have sleeping beauty moments anymore? Probably not to this effect. So, and that's, that's fine. That's, that's where we're at. But in this case, uh, Lilo doesn't appreciate it. And I like, I like how, you know, Bruce kind of backs off cause he's got a fucking gun to his head. Yeah, we hear that gun activate. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, and I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I should, I shouldn't have done it. And what did she say? It. Something, something gamo. Octagamo. I don't know. You're the one that speaks the fucking language. Which is basically never without my permission. Right. Yep. And then he was like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know. And so Cornelius kicks Corbin out. Thank you for your service. Thank you for bringing us to Fifth Element. And he leaves. Heads back home, and he's talking to Finger. Finger is the owner of the cab. Oh, not a scratch, but I had this fare. And he describes her, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a moment for Bruce. And then back to the apartment, Lilu is consuming information. She is a ravenous appetite of food and information. I love that microwave scene with the food. Let me ask you this. Did it make you want to have chicken? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Totally, right? Yeah. Yeah, I totally wanted some chicken like that. Mm-hmm. Although with uh, Corbin back at his place, when that uh, basically flying food truck shows up with the Chinese food, kind of was craving that too. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I hear you. So Lilu turns out she can talk to, she can talk to Cornelius, and Cornelius recognizes the. the he's able to talk to her. The divine language he speaks right. it. And so we come to find out that the stones were not on the ship, and that they were moved. <laughs> I loved her little laugh. <laughs> and they do a really good job of intercutting here because we... Nice editing. Yeah, we see the Mangalores get the case and they're taking it to Gary Ullman's character who, who is, you know, trading the case for four cases of these... ZF1s. And uh, at the same time when he's opening it to find out that it's empty, we cut to Lilu giving that laugh and, you know, they were the bait and switch. They were moved. Right. And then right after that, you have Cornelius saying, we're saved. And then it cuts immediately to Zorg. I'm screwed. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Zorg's like pissed off. He's all, you were supposed to bring me these stones. And I guess these Mongolors. Four cases. Yeah. These Mongolors must really be fucking stupid because how come they didn't check it when they found it? Apparently they're literal. I guess. Well. They kind of gave the impression that he didn't ask for the stones. He asked for the case. So all they cared about was getting the case. They didn't ever care about looking in it because he didn't ask for what was in it. He asked for the case. Oh, there you go. I really enjoyed him and his southern charm explaining the different aspects, the different features on this weapon. Yeah. That was a pretty badass weapon. It was. I mean, a little bulky, but whatever. What annoyed me was it was a lot of buildup of the weapon. When they show all the different things it can do, 
And then when he uses it later on in the movie, he just uses the gun part of it. He, we never get to see all the extra effects of it. Well, he wasn't trying to destroy the fucking ship. Yeah. But I'm just saying, it just seemed like a lot of buildup for a gun that we never really get to see used. Uh, well, we got to see it used on the dummy. I, I think yeah. that the one that made me cringe the most was uh, the poison darts to the yeah. face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, ooh. And so Zorg, uh, being Zorg, lets the Mongolors keep one case. And he says to his guy with him, he says, you know, if it were me and I was looking at a new weapon, I would definitely ask what this little red button does. And that's why he knows they're not very smart. Yep. And boom, they blow themselves up. Well, one of the other things that Zorg says here, and I want to know if you consider this an example of foreshadowing or maybe just a a callback for something later, which is Zorg says that he doesn't like uh, the Mangalores because they, they fight for hopeless causes and right arm, which is his little right side guy says, well, they fight for honor. And his response to that is honor killed millions of people. Hasn't saved a single one. I don't, I don't believe that for a second. Now he makes that comment about honor. What does the Mangalore say later on when he reactivates the bomb on the ship. When they activate their own bomb with only five seconds on it? Yeah, what does he say? For the honor. For the honor. So it almost seems like either that's foreshadowing that scene or is that like just a setup for that scene? I, w- I would call that ironic. Ironic, okay. So. so Cornelius is now called to Zorg's office and we get this moment with the cherry. Where he's choke, choking on the cherry. Where Cornelius could let him die. Could. What? But he wasn't going to. Before that, uh, what did you think of Zorg's reasoning of why he's not really the bad guy? Why what he's doing isn't a bad thing? Because he makes all these little jobs yeah. for all these little people. Because life creates chaos and death. And from death comes jobs and life and everything else. So he's kind of saying without chaos and death, you can't have life. So he, he's almost saying that with this great evil coming to kill everything, that's going to make everything better. He is uh, being seduced by an evil and mm-hmm. threatened. Um, the truth is nothing is going to survive. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Not so even it, him. So it doesn't fucking matter. You know what I mean? You can have all the money in the world, no place to spend it. Yeah. Well, that's what I think the symbolism of the cherry is. Is is it basically as he says it, you know, with all this chaos and this death, we're going to make things better. But as uh, Cornelius reveals to him, well, if there's nobody left, who's going to pat you on the back to get the cherry out your throat? So from here, we have Zorg. He is furious and he wants to find the stones at all costs and right arm ends up using a very special cockroach this very very special cockroach that infiltrates the president's office and has a little camera on it hilarious it's like a little satellite dish or something on the back of it which the first two things i thought was strange was if you're going to maneuver a cockroach to listen why are you going to put it on the table where everybody's going to see it and wouldn't somebody notice a big like little, like a dish on the back of a cockroach? Yeah, I mean, if you guys are asking yourself the, these questions during this movie, then I think you missed the point. Um, I wasn't. I, I, who cares, right? I mean, it's obvious. And uh, I think the gag is for 
when the president squashes it. have his shoe off. Yeah. And it hurts his ears. It hurts his ear. I mean, that's what the gag is for. You know what I mean? It's either that or these people are fucking blind or they don't care. One of the two. Mm -hmm. But you're, you guys, I mean, you're right. How do you not see it? (laughs) Well, eventually he is seen because it's squished. That's right. And so we, uh, and so Zorg finds out. About the diva and and where they are at. And where the stones are at, absolutely. Yep. And so they uh, they have to find a guy to take on the mission, and of course, it's Corbin. So General Monroe is off to talk to Major Dallas. And uh, General Monroe brings a gal with him. Who's, Iceberg, I think is her name, something like that. Oh, was it? And she's supposed to pose as his wife, and they have rigged a radio contest in order for him to win these tickets to Flossed in Paradise to see Plava Laguna in concert. Now, here's my question. You are the you are the bosses. You are the federation, right? Why do you have to rig a radio contest? Why can't you just put Corbin on the fucking ship? Yeah, and get him tickets to the concert. Yeah. I took it as it was to go incognito. Yeah. Well, yeah. Was There's that, probably that. And they had mentioned something earlier about it being completely sold out. Uh, because this was supposed to be some yeah, but event. again, they're the fucking federation. One question right? I have for you: When General Monroe shows up and starts talking to Corbin and mentions the reason we need you is you are the best of the best and blah blah blah, and besides that, all of the rest of your unit is dead. Did you not get kind of a what was it a Rambo three vibe from that? No, maybe Rambo two. No, no, it was it was just it's a it's a, a, a classic action trope. Yeah. Right. He he's the best, and he's the last of his unit. So I, I didn't put the two together, not at all. It was a little plot inconsistency because Finger, who he talks to a couple times on the phone, he's supposedly from his unit. Right. Supposedly. Right. And you know, I did. Who cares? Yeah. I and I guess I just didn't pay attention. So I was distracted by discount Princess Leia. Absolutely. I like how he has to dispose of them because he doesn't want to get caught by Cornelius and Lilu who show up because but, they know that Corbin has the tickets and they're going to rob him, I guess. Because it's been all over the news. So bad news, putting that all over the news, right? Because now that calls attention to him. Because yeah, everybody's right. going to mug him. Right. So they're uh, so much for incognito. So he right. puts them in the refrigerator? Shoves I, them in the refrigerator. Yeah, I think so. And then, of course, Cornelius and Lilu come in. And I forget exactly how How does he end up putting her? Because I think the police show up. The police something. show up with a warrant. Yeah. And the warrant is for Corbin Dallas. And we think that they have the right room, but they don't. And well, so Lilu had taken the tag off his door, and somehow she put it on the door across the way. Yeah. Right. And so we have we have them shoved into she's shoved into the little shower and Cornelius is shoved into the bed and with the, the plastic over his face yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah and then the bit where you know she's coming out of the shower and she's shivering and just Auto a little moment wash. yeah <laughs> I do like too when uh, you know he Corbin's got his hands on the wall and he's cooperating and the person says are you human and he says no I am a was it a meat popsicle negative I am a meat popsicle yeah negative I meat. and then the other guy what does he say across the way he he says something like he gives him the finger and he tells him to like frack you yeah or, or something like that wrong answer now did you catch the guy that was his neighbor uh, who they drag away thinking is Corbin Dallas when the Mangalores 
uh, go up to claim that they are Corbin Dallas, they have copied that guy's face. Yep. Yeah. Because that's who they had in the bag. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, Cornelius steals the ticket. And they take off, and I guess he knocks Corbin out or knocks him down or something. Yep. And then uh, Corbin gets up and tells the... The, the popsicle general. Who looks dead. He does look dead. He does, absolutely. Uh, he says he'll take the mission. And we're off to the airport. So uh, Zorg knows that uh, he has the... Corbin has the ticket, and the Mongolors know that uh, Corbin has the ticket. I thought it was kind of funny that they all showed up after Corbin. They were all late. Hilarious. You know, and, you know, you do that, and that's good writing, and because you have to have the uh, outcome of what's going on. And, you know, this is where, you know, you probably get the most quoted lines from the fifth element. You know, uh, Lilu is all kinds of happy that she has a multi-pass. Lilu multi-pass. Lilu Dallas multi-pass. Yeah. Multi-pass. Yeah. One of the things, I don't know if it's security of the future, but how many shootouts and explosions happen in the lobby area of this you know, boarding area, and everybody seems unfazed by it, and it just business keeps going on as normal. Yeah, I mean, it's the future. You know, that's why the agents are in a protected booth, and when that dude hits it, all those guns come right down. Right arm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's just the future that we're headed for. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's I all like when David is claiming that he is Corbin Dallas, and Corbin shows up, and, oh, thank you for saving my space. And Yeah, and then Cornelius is at the uh, airport bar telling his worries to a robot bartender, and then when David shows up, Cornelius is like, what the fuck are you doing here? And he's all, the real Corbin showed up. And so, you know, uh, Cornelius has to get on this fucking ship. And th- this is where he says, go to the, he tells David, go to the temple, get it ready for our arrival. You know, and I, he might have to have cleaned up the, you know, smashed robot. Take a little tissue out, pick it up. Yeah, probably. I Flush mean, it. 300 years, who knows? Yeah. Who knows what it's like. As we get onto the flight, we are introduced to the one and only Ruby Rod. Hotter than hot, he's hot. Hot! The right size, the right build, the right head, the right on. And I like the beat that plays while he's walking and talking and doing his show. And you have this whole, you know, 1960s airline flight attendant vibe. And, uh, you know, people are getting escorted to their sleep chambers, which I thought is always a nice touch in a science fiction space travel film. What do you think of how he autographs all the pictures? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Pulls out the little paint and just goes along. Yep, yep. Hilarious. And then, uh, you know, he's doing his broadcast and he tells Corbin to say something and Corbin's not doing it. <laughs> cool. And, uh, you know, the bit where he, uh, well, fuck, it looks like he's just going down on her, uh, the the flight attendant. Well, I like how she he tells her that you know, she's his best he's ever had human. <laughs> right. And so then, apparently he's had better that's not human. And then I like how he says... I love you. <laughs> so good. In the meantime, Cornelius is trying to get on board. And as Cornelius is trying to get on board, we also have this reggae music start as they have to clean out the, those those little things from the landing gear area. Yeah. I just and I, I just dug this moment with the music because we're intercutting with that happening and then preparing for flight. 
Lilu is able to speak English now, and then they got to go to sleep, and then you have Ruby Rod seducing the woman. Her then, legs are going up. And then we have the countdown happening. Three, two, one. And then we have the woman hit her orgasm, and then we have the ship taking off. Oh, gosh, it was just so delightful. Yeah, it's, it's good intercutting, right? And it's fun. Mm-hmm. And it's very fun. Do you guys remember a toy line called Boggles? I think that came out in the 90s, as well as those those balls that had little nubbins on them that vibrated. Kind of, vaguely. That's what they used for little parasites that they were flamethrowing yeah. before the ship took off. They looked rubber. Yeah. But, you know, at that point, I didn't care. In the meantime, we have Zorg getting a phone call from Mr. Shadow. And then we get to we get to hear a little bit about do you have the stones and then we, and then you see the blood coming down his forehead. That's what I've always I've seen a lot of debate online whether it is blood or is since it's so dark and so black is it just the nature of evil flowing down his head? Because if you notice in the beginning when that uh, guy is attacking the planet for the f- first time, that general or whoever it was on that spaceship, he had the same thing coming down the top of his head. So is it just evil or is it, was it blood? I didn't think it was blood because there's no cut on his head. It just looks so oily, so black. It looks oil, yeah. It looks like black oil. I didn't think it was blood because, again, there's no cut on the head. So it must be, um, you know, just pure evil, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it was blood that was just pulled out of his forehead. Yeah, maybe. It looked really black. Yeah, there's a it lot was of, dark. A lot of yeah. things that had never been explained. I think that's just up for audience interpretation. Yeah, and you know what I'm going to say. Who cares? Right. So from here we have, we arrive at Flostom Paradise and we de- we, we uh, disembark the ship. Everybody has their lays. Very Hawaiian the- kind of theme to it. Yeah, very much so. And this is where the film picks up and this is where we get to see Bruce B. Bruce and I, I think it's this part of the film that I enjoy the best. This from here on, from here on out in the film, I think I like this the best. We're introduced to Plava Laguna. Plava Laguna, as she goes into her room, she conveys to one of her assistants to make contact with Lilu, which she does. And Lilu is to receive the stones after the concert. Well, speaking of Plava Laguna. Did you get what her the meaning of her name is and where the origin is? Uh-uh. Plava, I guess, uh, means blue, and Laguna is lagoon. So her name translates into Blue Lagoon. And, and for Luke Basson, I guess he loved vacationing in a resort called Plava Laguna. So it was a call-out to his favorite resort that he named the opera singer after. Cool. During the concert, the Mangalores attack and Plava Laguna dies. Dallas extracts the stones from her body and kills the Mangalore leader, causing the others to surrender. Zorg arrives, shoots and traumatizes Lilu, and activates a time bomb. He flees with a carrying case he presumes contains the stones, but returns when he discovers it is empty. He deactivates the bomb, but a dying Mangalore sets off his own destroying the hotel and killing Zorg. Meanwhile, Dallas, Cornelius, Lilu, and Rod escape with the stones in Zorg's private spaceship. As the great evil approaches Earth, the four meet David at the temple. They deploy the stones, but Lilu 
having learned of humanity's own terrible history of war, has given up on life. Dallas declares his love for her and kisses her. In response, Lilo combines the powers of the stone, emitting divine light onto the great evil and defeating it. She and Dallas are hailed as heroes and, as dignitaries wait to greet them, the two passionately embrace in a recovery chamber. Shouldn't it be they bone? I, I would thought so too, but roll credits. So talking about this opera performance, when you talk about Fifth Element, a lot of people will bring up the music and the opera and everything. What did you think of that performance? I thought it was great. I loved it. I always think of that music every time I think of Fifth Element, how they kind of splice it all together and how it's it's not really, or it's not reality that it can actually be performed that way. But I guess when they flash to the reaction of Corbin, of Bruce Willis, that was his first time hearing it. The director let him hear it for the first time when they were filming it. So that was a genuine reaction. Cool. Well, for everybody, because Plava Laguna was held in secret and nobody knew what she was going to look like until she walked out onto the stage and she was blue and nobody was expecting that at all. The actress playing that part, she rehearsed uh, her movements for that for, uh, I guess, like three months. And she spent a lot of time making sure that the lip sync was perfect. The diva that they did get to sing the music, it had to be done uh, over several uh, recording sets because that is not possible to do in, in, in one session recording. Anyway, I thought that it was, I, I, I thought it was just so beautiful, especially with the backdrop that they chose of the that blue planet behind her. Sure. It was gorgeous. Yep. And then the music picks up and we cut to Lee Lu protecting the case of stones or whatever. He's, she sees the Mangalores. Ken brought up a great point earlier that he talked about how this movie is really well spliced in with certain scenes, certain music, certain action going on, cases being open, case, you know, things being shut. The way they splice it together with the opera singer singing and Lilu fighting, I thought was really well done. Oh, that's like one of my favorite scenes. But can we talk about when Corbin and Rod, they come in and Rod, he's on fire on his show talking about it, all the different people in the audience. I loved that moment. Yeah. Well, I love... The part that I liked about that moment is he then goes to Corbin to get another response from him, and Corbin once again only gives a one-word answer. Thrilled. And you get that you get that look on Ruby Rod's face of "Oh my god!" Oh yeah, his frustration. You're just killing Corbin. my show. Yeah, this action scene with Lilu fighting the Mangalores in conjunction with that. Yeah, I, I man, I, I just I loved that beat. Uh, it it had a uh, sort of a Middle Eastern or uh, maybe an Indian sort of sound to it. Yeah. So much fun, you know. Not a practical fight, but it was it was visually stunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a science fiction movie, so yeah. come yeah, on. She learned it from watching it on TV. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When she get a little, and so Zerg shows up, and he he wants that case, and he uses his cool gun, um, and he shoots. And hits Lilu, I guess. Well, she's up in the duct, and I don't think they ever really show her getting hit, but the bullet spray through it, something must have hit her. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. At and the same time, isn't this where the Mangalores shoot Plava Laguna? Yep, and Plava Laguna is dying, and she tells Corbin, you know, the stones are in me. And I thought this bit was weird. I remember seeing it for the first time, and he pulls the stones out of her stomach, and... I just thought it was odd. Well, the the two interesting things with this one, 
was this is where she foreshadows the end of the movie, which is basically saying you're going to have to give her your love. That's what she's going to need to save all of us. Sure. So that kind of gives you the hint of, okay, well, that's what is he's going to have to say I love you at the end. The second one was, you're right. It's weird that the stones were in her that not only could she sing and do all those things, but she had four big stones inside of her. That's just odd. And that she's been carrying them around. What was her plan? To poop them out or... I was curious about that as well. She is considerably taller, though. She's going to give those stones to Lilu after the concert. I, I wonder what that process was going to be about. Yeah, what what hole did she stick those stones in? Whoa, 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 buddy. Why do you take it there? It's not she's, like she's a mule. I know. I, well, I was going to say, how did she get them in there in the first place? But She swallowed them? Maybe her mouth, you know. All right, Pervo. We're moving on before you get in trouble. Plava Laguna shares with... Corbin, how important he is to Lilu and how significant that Lilu has him because she is more vulnerable than what she appears to be. Right. And with that, that I think gives Corbin a real uh, injection of hope that maybe, just maybe, if things could work out sometime in the future, that he could be a part of her life. Sure. Absolutely. And so he gets the stones and he wraps them up in a jacket and he gives them to Ruby Rod. And now they have to get out of the fucking theater and the whole hotel is under attack by these Mangalores. I want to know, how did they get so many fucking Mangalores onto the ship? There must have been dozens of them. No, it was a clown car, bud. And all the weapons that they had? I know. I know. Well, they did. Well, no, they blew up that crate. (laughs) And in this bit, when he's in the theater, you get the classic Bruce Willis yell. Right. In every movie Bruce Willis does, he gives a yeah that's very recognizable. And it, and it just so happens at this point, the first time he does it is when he's jumping off the balcony being fucking Bruce Willis. I really appreciated this whole bit because we got back to the action and we got back to why we went to see this movie in the first place. And I think my favorite bit in this whole thing is when they go to the bridge and uh, the Mongolors have hostages inside and the next kid in command. Uh, You're in charge of security? Yep. And uh, Send out a negotiator. And he and Bruce Willis looks at... Do you, do you mind if I do? I love that bit. Like, dude, yeah, absolutely. And he walks in, shoots him right in the face and gives the great line. Does anybody else want to negotiate? And so... Well, my favorite part, you know, comes right after that when... Where, where did he learn to negotiate? I wonder. And then when he looks at the general, when the president looks at the general. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's good. And and then the whole, the president says, this is your idea of a discreet operation. Well, what the fuck were you thinking? You announced on the radio that this guy won the fucking contest. Discreet went out the door as soon as you rigged this contest. I totally loved when they were escaping the room right when the bomb is about ready to go off and Ruby Rod is screaming. It's such a high-pitched scream. And and I like the bit when, uh, you know, so they, so the Mongolors are taken care of. We're kind of winding down and Corbin is looking for Lilu, right? And he finds her or sees her arm or whatever and he goes into the diva's room and she's laying in the, or she's hanging in the, ventilation yep. system whatever he pulls her down and then uh cornelius and ruby notice the bomb no 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 it's not a bomb because if there were a bomb the ship's bomb detectors would let us know i love that the detector waits till like 15 seconds left to let them know there's a bomb i, I know it was right? five minutes 
Was it five minutes? Yeah. Yes. In the meantime, Zorg has discovered that he has an empty case. Why didn't he look in that case sooner? After getting burned earlier. I, I think you would have thought that he would have learned, but it, Gary Oldman's reaction makes me giggle every time I watch it. The way it he too. laughs. Yeah, absolutely. Like, are you fucking kidding me? I can't believe this is happening. So he's got to go back. He's got to go back. And so uh, Corbin, Lilu, Cornelius, and Rod get on Zorg's ship. I want to talk about the moment that the, right before they get to the ship because they're escaping because the bomb is moments away from exploding. And they and they get onto the elevator and Zorg gets off of the elevator. Do you remember this moment that yep, I'm talking absolutely. about? This is something that is extremely unique in this movie that happens in essentially no other movie, which is you have the protagonist and the antagonist not necessarily knowing about each other. They never share mm. any screen time. They never have any interactions with each other. The only interaction that happens between our protagonist and antagonist is that Zorg fires him as a cab driver. Probably one of those one million, remember the right arm said 500,000, and no, it wasn't right arm, but anyway, five hundred. no, make it a million. So that's the only interaction they have. They have no idea of each other's existence. They never have any interactions with each other, and they do not affect their story arcs in any way other than what is happening because of the situation that has happened. It's very interesting. Well, now I got to look it up. I yeah, I'm going to be looking for that in every movie now. Yeah. I know that there are movies where actors don't interact but they're not necessarily the protagonist or antagonist so I'd, I'd be interested to see well I'll tell you I haven't seen it yet and I've and I've 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 noticed this for a long time well Frodo never directly interacts with Sauron but they but one knows of the other <laughs> for, right. ne- for, for neither to know about no, each right, other right, right, right no he's right yeah interesting interesting so yeah so they end up taking Zorg's ship and then Zorg <laughs> I loved how he finally exhales with five seconds left. Doing that, that card, making sure that it goes through. And he div- he manages to uh, stop the timer, defuse the bomb, if you will. Uh, but you knew that something had to keep it going, and this is where the Mongolors have their own bomb that apparently is on the same timer as uh, Zorg's bomb, or- which leads me to... Did Zorg supply the Mongolors with the same bombs? Or it would I, make sense. Or I took it as it's just a suicide bomb. In other words, if they choose to activate that bomb, it's a suicide bomb. Well, the, the interesting thing, and this might go towards the bomb itself, is that the number five appears throughout this movie just all over the place. Uh, there are five elements. Corbin's license has five points left on it. Zorg stops the bomb with five seconds remaining. And then the Mandalore's bomb start starts with five seconds. So I don't know if it was just that coincidence or you know, that's the way the director and the writer worked everything because they wanted the number five to appear everywhere they could in the movie. I would probably go with that. So Corbin is now addressing the wounds of Lilu and they start having a talk. And Lilu has discovered war is humanity's shortcoming and she feels no hope for life had she gotten to that yet because i thought she said that she still had a few more things to go and he's she said well where'd you stop you she said v you you could be right because it's yes it's at this time she's only to v 
And then it's during the trip back that she gets to W. So yeah, that's correct. Because he basically says, well, there's a lot of nice things in V, like Victory and uh, Valiant and some whatever he names off. And Very beautiful. Yeah, and then she starts watching it as they're heading off to the temple, and that's when she starts seeing everything about right. war. And he does say, I was told that I, I needed to... Pre- I needed to take care of you. And so that's when he's putting the bandages, the bandages on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he reports his status with the president. And I like this bit because uh, the black mass, the great evil has accelerated its speed and is heading to earth much faster. And I like the bit where the ball goes flying by and then you see all the uh, other starships that are in pursuit of it. I thought that was funny. And I also like the bit where uh, uh, Corbin says, how long do we have? And he says... One uh, hour and 57 minutes. He said, all right, I'll call you back in two hours. <laughs> Such a good line. And uh, so they land, and David has done his job and got the temple ready. But now they have to activate the weapon. They have all five elements. Uh, but for some reason... Cornelius, who's supposed to be all-knowing about this fucking religion and this... Theoretically. Uh, yeah. He doesn't know doesn't how, know how it Doesn't know how it works. And I got to know, if you're sitting on the spaceship getting a ride to this fucking place, why aren't you looking at the stones and trying to figure it out there, too? I don't know. All good questions that I have. Anyways, so they get there, and they can't make it work. Lilu was super sad because now she's found out about war. Yep. And uh, Corbin goes over to her and says... Uh, how do they work? What are we doing? Right. And she says, wind blows, uh, fire burns Mm -hmm. and waterfalls or whatever. And so, uh, did you guys, when you saw it, did you know how to activate them? Did you know that, that they were going to do that? I I can't remember the first time I thought, you know, saw it, but it does seem pretty obvious when she said wind blows. My first thought would be blow at the thing. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, because we've already seen a hundred other tropes, we have to get the trope of he's got one match left and one chance to light everything. I thought it was kind of ingenious how uh, Vito activated his. He took the sweat off of his yeah. forehead and yeah, yeah. One and then uh, uh, Rod's yeah. expression: "Mine's broke. Why, why, why do he get the broke ones? Why get the broke ones? Now the the interesting thing about the fire and the match is it just typical Hollywood movie trope that the person with the one match has to light it way above the thing and then slowly bring it down where anybody could have blown it out. Well, cinematically it looked. He could have just lit it right above the stone and dropped it right on. Yeah, but he didn't. He did it to give us a cinematic look at it because you have to have that moment as he's coming down where it almost goes out Mm -hmm. and everybody goes, (gasps) so that's what that's for. And so uh, we got the four stones going. But if you think about it, who was the big hero in this scene? Lilu. I think it was David because David's the one who kind of figured out the wind blows. They figured it out from him sighing over the stone. Okay. Well, so, we'll, 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 give, we'll give David the gold star. I, I think, you know, he was kind of a comedic effect throughout the whole movie. But in the end, they may have taken longer to figure it out if he hadn't done that. I guess we'll never know, will we? Mm-mm. So never know. Uh, I'm gonna, uh, Professor. I'm gonna need you to mark this in the books. Gold star for David. Okay. Gold star for David. Yep. And his Devo hat. He, uh, hero of the movie, David. Got it. Got it. Okay. And his Devo hat. Uh, so uh, they get the four stones going. 
but they can't activate Lilu. And this was very cliched for me. Certainly, certainly was. We had such a great buildup and everything was working. I felt like this bit, and I'm not a, saying I'm not a fan of love. I love love. Uh, it just it was such an easy way out. Mm-hmm. And what the, I think the bit that really kind of kicked me in the balls was when uh, Vito's like, tell her, Corbin. Like everybody else knew. Everyone in the fucking world. And Corbin can't doesn't know? Come on. So... The, Anyways, the world's just about to die and everyone's about to die and he's struggling on whether he can say it or not. Right, right, right. But he does and she works and we get another great Bruce Willis yell as he's holding on to her and the black mass stops 62, 62 miles, miles from Earth. Which when it shows it floating up in space, that looks a little farther away than 62 miles. Yeah, who's to say? Well, we don't have much of a size context. It's 1,200 miles across, but we don't necessarily know, perspective speaking. And what we don't know, too, is the the gravi- you know, gravimetric pull of that probably started a bunch of uh, tidal waves and yeah. earthquakes. and Maybe this is what led to Waterworld. Could be. Oh, look at that. I don't know if the time Yes, it works. does, because Waterworld took place around 2,500. Interesting. You Did you come up with that all by yourself just now? Yes. I'm proud of you, bud. And so, you know, the day is saved, and you you saw this scene coming a mile away as well, right? Uh, the president and the colonel are, you know, he wants, going. He wants to see his heroes. And he wants to congratulate them. And I like the bit where Corbin's mom calls again and what she sell, tells him. Uh, the president's an idiot. idiot. You, you don't, don't sound, sound like, like you're an, an idiot. idiot. You know. Speaking of her call, did you get, uh, did you listen to what she said after that? No. Uh, when she's complaining on the phone, she says, I might as well throw myself into traffic, saran, my, saran wrap myself to a bed and pretend my child is suffocating me. So basically she's naming off of things that happened previously in the movie. Oh, yeah. Look at that. And so Lilu and Dallas celebrate their love in the regeneration chamber I wonder if that does something for the performance. I don't know, but isn't that sort of mildly creepy that you got a 40-year-old guy with a 20-year-old gal? I thought about that last night, and yeah, it kind of is. A little bit. For me, the creep factor was also the fact that anybody could kind of look in through the window at any time, like that doctor did, the professor did. Well, he he closed it right afterwards, and he asked for five more minutes. He's got 20 seconds. I I like that bit, too, because he's like, you know. I have 19 more meetings. (laughs) And he's the fucking president. You know, and then they do the 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 whole staple of uh, uh, the freeze frame shot. Yes, and the I, freeze frame. I it just always kind of gets on my nerves. So, I do have one more translation I forgot to mention earlier. Oh, well, please by, do. Yes, by all fucking means, we're all ears. So when I brought up the divine language earlier, one thing I forgot to mention was when Lilu says her name. There is actually a translation for her name. Uh, she says something like uh, Lilu Mani Lakata Lamina Tachi Ekobot De Sabat. Man, you, without my permission. Your accent is all off. I know, it's horrible. But what it translates into precious stone of the earth, defender of the light and life, the honorable. That Well, yeah, that makes sense. She is the fifth element. 
And, you know, I think at the core of this is just a movie about good and evil and that love should always win. That's how I took it. Yay, love. Bad Gary Oldman. So can I ask you guys a quick question? Um, It's been bugging me. By all means, my friend. The actor that played Vito Cornelius. I feel like I've seen him somewhere. Who is that guy? He is Ash from Alien. Okay, yeah, I think so. Oh, right. Uh Uh-huh. And, wait a minute. Are you trying to fucking tell me that you don't know what else he's from? No, not off the top of my head. Uh, Something I believe you uh, hold as the best movie series of all time. He, He wouldn't have to be Bilbo, would he? And now it's time for John's... Moment. So this is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are currently reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. So for the fifth element, let's start with Frodo the Ring Bearer, the character that's set on the journey to save the world. So in this movie, the Ring Bearer would be Lilu. She is our Frodo. Lilu Sam is the character who will follow Frodo all the way to the cliff of Mount Doom and protect her. For Lilu, her Sam is Corbin Dallas. Corbin also shows some leadership tendencies, which gives him a lot of Aragorn qualities. Now, you could also look at this movie from a different angle, where Lilu is actually the ring and Corbin is the ring bearer and her, because he is her protector. But since he's not with her the majority of the film, and since he doesn't cast her off at the end of the movie, but instead embraces her, I found it hard backing this idea. Gandalf, I chose Vito Cornelius. He's the one with the knowledge to lead the fellowship in the right direction. Merry and Pippin, for them, I feel that's Ruby Rod and David. While both had their useful moments, both serve more for comedic purposes. So that makes Lilu, Corbin, Vito, David, and Ruby Rod our fellowship. President Lindbergh, he represents King Theoden. Sauron the White, well that would be Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg. Like Sauron, he serves a more powerful master. So the Mangalores would be his orc army. That makes the dark planet, the great evil, our Sauron. Besides the fact that the giant circle in space resembles a big eye, it's the big bad calling all the shots on his path to remake Middle-earth in his own image. So what is the precious? What is the one ring? In the interview, Bassan stated that he wanted viewers to reach the point where Lilu states, what's the use of saving life when you see what you do with it? And agree with her. What's the point of life when it leads to only destruction? That's the ring in this movie. Life. Throughout the movie, as Lilu learns more about life, she is corrupted by it. It's not until Corbin shows her the positive side of life, love, and everything that comes with it, that she is able to cast off the corruption and save the day. So there you have it. My comparison between The Fifth Element and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. Fine, I'll go first. All right, so we have our obvious choices of uh, Sam, Gandalf, and Frodo. I will say that uh, I did have a disturbing moment during your review. 
it it went to a dark place. All of a sudden, I'm thinking of Sam and Frodo in the blue chamber at the very end of the movie. <laughs> well, it's almost given to us at the end of Return of the King. So there you go. <laughs> I think that's my favorite correlation of the night. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I like uh, I like the uh, the Mangalore being the orcs. And uh, Saruman, you know, with uh, Cornelius. Of course you did. It's a fucking no-brainer. Right? And so I feel like all of those fall into place. And Marion Pippin, yeah, that works well. So since you have so many that fill the bill, I'm going to give you a B-. minus. Well, I'm going to say that uh, your fellowship and your evil and fucking no-brainer. Right. Easy peasy squeezy. What I was looking for is uh, how you incorporated the precious and what the precious was, because there really is no physical object that is the precious. Um, and the way you laid it out, not bad. Not bad at all. I think I'm more impressed with that than the, you know, the opening no brainers. So for that, I too am going to give you a B minus. And I will take it. Fuck yeah, you will. Take it real good. And that was John's. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. Johnny, ready to rate this flick? I'm green. All right, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think it is cinematic gold. Somebody says, You want to watch this movie? Fuck yeah, I do. A one-fuck movie is you get done watching it and you're thinking, what the fuck was that? And what's a zero? A zero-fuck movie is, oh, for shit's sakes, what the hell? Why did you make me watch that? I want two hours and seven minutes of my life back. This movie isn't even worth a fuck. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. Um, Okay, I'll go. Crazy. The Fifth Element is a fun ride. It's a good science fiction, good versus evil. For me, it's a very simple story, and I had a lot of fun with it. Bruce Willis in 97 is pretty much on top of the world. He's at his game. He is charming, charismatic, and so much fun to watch on screen. The supporting cast does a really good job. I remember uh, not really liking Mila Jolovich when I first saw it earlier on, but as time has uh, gone on, I've come to appreciate her uh, more in this film. As far as action films go, I think it's kind of right in the middle of, um, you know, the, the genre. As far as science fiction goes, we've seen the tropes before. It's hard to come up with something original. But I think Luke Besson gave us something very visually fun to look at. And like we've been saying all night, the fucking soundtrack, right? I dug the soundtrack. It moves us along. Is it a perfect film? No. But, I mean, what film is? So, for those reasons, I am going to give The Fifth Element four solid fucks. All right. Do you care if I go next? You go next. Fifth Element, for me, is a really enjoyable watch. I've watched it many times over the years, and I have to say that it never gets old for me. Each time I watch it, I enjoy it as much as I did the time before. The vibrancy of the visualness of the movie, I 
love it. It just looks so unique and beautiful. I feel like it's a science fiction movie like no other. Combine that with the cinematic score and the editing and the characters in it, especially Lilu. Lilu's character is so unique, and I thought that she was done beautifully by Mila Jojovich, and she is a star in this movie for me. It is far and away my favorite role in her. Ruby Rod, oh my gosh, every second he is on screen, he just, I, I just eat up every little bit of him. I just love him so much. He is so fun to watch. He's such a dynamic character. Corbin Dallas, love him. Bruce Willis on top of the world. It is John McClane in outer space, as we've stated before. These main characters are just such a delight. The action sequences are so much fun. And Zorg, I think he is a delightful villain. Gary Oldman, he he is so good in this. And the movie he did uh, a little earlier, Leon the, the Professional, which was also by Luke Basson, you know, he plays a truly creepy guy in that. And I got to say that he has some really strong acting chops. Loved him in that. Love him in this. Loved him as, as Commissioner Gordon. You know, he is he's a delightful actor. This movie is so much fun for me to watch each time I see it. I, I never think, eh. It's always so visually stunning to watch. And because of that, I'm giving this movie 4.25 fucks. 4.25 fucks from The Professor. So, Don, do you want to see if you can get back on track guessing my rating for this movie? All right, buddy. You, okay. had, you had a great streak of, what, four times four in a row? Four in a row, so I guess uh, I'm four and one, and that's okay. Uh, I, I can live with those odds. I can live with those odds. Okay, uh, the fifth element. I think that everything we've said tonight, the comic book guy is going to give the four, fifth element four fucks. You're going on record with four fucks. What did I just fucking say? That you're going on record with four fucks. I'm not even going to dignify that. The Fifth Element is a cult classic sci-fi comedy that never fails to entertain me. From its outrageous characters to its over-the-top action scenes, there's never a dull moment for me in this movie. Lilu Dallas Multipass is an ultimate badass heroine. She's a genetically engineered humanoid who was created to be the fifth element. The only thing that can stop the dark force from destroying the universe. But what makes Lilu so endearing is her quirky personality and offbeat sense of humor. Mila Jovovich's performance for me is pitch perfect in this movie. And it's her chemistry with Bruce Willis, although a bit quirky, somehow works well together. I also appreciate the theme of giving us, the viewer, an outside take on humanity from a being who's just learning what it means to be human. The fifth element is also full of hilarious moments and quotable lines, from the opera singer's rendition of the diva dance to the priest's bumbling attempts to save the day there rarely is a dull moment in this movie multi-pass big bada boom i am a meat popsicle there are so many quotable lines for fans of this film this is probably one of the movies i find myself quoting most often i think my only complaint about this movie is that after the first couple watches the character ruby rod starts to get a little bit annoying but if you can get past that, 
It's a movie that is easy to rewatch over and over again. The Fifth Element is a classic sci-fi comedy that never fails to entertain me. Whenever I'm channel surfing and I stop on TBS, it always seems to be playing, and I always find myself stopping to watch it wherever the point of the movie is at. So for those reasons, I'm giving The Fifth Element four solid fucks. Bang, motherfucker! I don't know why I was so off last week. It's probably because I wasn't feeling so well. Oh, maybe. What movie did we even... Oh, Tell the Nights. I don't even fucking remember what movie we did. All right. So with four fucks from yours truly, 4.25 fucks from The Professor, and four solid fucks from The Comic Book Guy, that gives The Fifth Element an average of... 4.1 fucks. With an average of 4.1 fucks, it sits in the 10th position, tied with Spider-Man, No Way Home, Clerks 3, and Violent Night. Slightly better than Dodgeball, Edge of Tomorrow, Clerks 2, and slightly worse than Thor, Love and Thunder, The Breakfast Club, and Top Gun Maverick. I really like where it sits with the other 4.1 movies. That sounds just right. I agree. It works for me. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you want to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out our website. And uh, speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? Well, as always, they can find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we post all of our podcasts, teasers for our next podcast, our show notes, movie trivia, whatever else I can kind of cram up inside that diva. Uh, they can also find us at any social media sites or any uh, any place that hosts podcasts. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for always listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank anyone else who listens to us and who has suggested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. So for Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Ladies and gentlemen, it is 7 p.m. Time for the news. See you tomorrow for a new adventure. Released on May 7th, 1997, Luke Besson. 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 I'm going to say Besson. 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 I'm going to say Besson. Fuck off. You fuck off. Austin Paradise is the, the planet. The planet. It's oh. discount. Uh, discount Hawaii. No cosplay is not consent. Oh, thank you for trying your dress on. You're welcome. It, it's a bit tight. It's a bit tight. Well, lose weight. <clears throat> well, fuck off. Uh, we haven't we haven't talked about the second paragraph yet. Jumping to the future and the big oh. fireball. Oh, you're right. You're right. I know. Shut up. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's Nerd. Like, totally. Like learning Klingon or Navi or something. You guys don't got anything better to do with your time? That's cool. That's cool. I don't judge. Big bada boom. Good line. That's what I was going to say is that line. <laughs> Beat you to it, fucker. I can't believe he didn't know Ian Holm. Well, neither can I, but that's okay. That's okay. We're Sorry. not judging. Is not this where all. I admit I've never actually seen Lord of the Rings? <laughs> 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 got a porn name? Ah, the I, already, I already got one. Oh, do you? Okay, we'll, do. we'll fucking fire away. The fuck element. And can you imagine the end scene to activate the 
the fuck element what they have to do what what would they have to do buddy they'd have to fuck what about you you got one no <laughs> uh i'm going to call it the filth element that could work too yeah a little bondage get a little filthy all right fuck off good night